listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. Okay, Jeff. So it seems to me over the last four episodes, we have virtually kicked the crap out of intellectual capital. So we've... (laughs) We've made the case for intellectual capital. We've said why it matters. We've talked about strategy, what it looks like, how to do it well. We've talked about friction in the buying cycle and how to take intellectual capital strategies down into sales and beyond into service delivery. But the one thing we haven't actually done, I don't think exceptionally well, is just give people examples, which at the end of the day, if I'm listening to this series, that's probably going to be the most useful thing is to say, okay, show me some examples of firms who do this really well and tell me why so that I can look at them as you know inspiration or, or activation or whatever. So that's what we're doing today. Um, I don't know if you want to start us out or if you want me to start us out, but um, I made a short list of folks I think are doing this really well, and I'm sure you've done the same. So that's the goal. It's a good goal. I'll start us out, and I want to start out with two points. The first point is I want to give a a shout out to our listeners, specifically those that matriculated from the NCAA basketball powerhouse known as Oral Roberts University, (laughs) and say congratulations on your recent NCAA tournament success. Well done. While we're on that, let's give a quick shout out to all those Ohio State fans for their success and their resounding victory over University of Michigan in the Big Ten tournament. <laughs> you know I couldn't have passed that up. And you've been on vacation, so we haven't had a chance to talk. So I just felt it important to reach out to our listeners and, and just <laughs> congratulate them on their alma mater's success. All of our listeners from Oral Roberts. That make up <laughs> so, all right, all right, all right, okay, okay. All right, so the second thing, getting serious now, although I, I have to say, just picking on you in that, that way, put a big smile on my face, and it's good to have you back. <laughs> Is Michigan still alive? Are they still in? Yes. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to go through some examples today of people that are doing things right. I want to give a couple of kind of caveats or upfront kind of guidance with this. The first thing is nobody does this perfectly. So the examples that we're going to share with you are not like perfect. Two, and the profiting from thought leadership definitely bore this out in your research is it takes time to get to a certain level of maturity and sophistication around intellectual capital and its production and and distribution. So these people will be at different stages of that life cycle. And I, I think it's important to provide examples where, you know, there's a, a burgeoning intellectual capital agenda that's evolving and others that, you know, are, are really mature. And then third, and Jason, I want you to to chime in on this as as well, but specifically when we go through these, what are the criteria and why did they make the list and why were they good enough in certain areas to make the list? So here are some of the key kind of attributes that I looked at when choosing the ones on my list. And this really is kind of a, a quick reiteration of all of our intellectual Capital podcasts up to this point. One, they're very clear about their market positioning and their brand positioning 
and they understand the value that they provide. They have that strategic clarity. Two, they've picked issues or outcomes that are aligned with those three kind of value driver areas of of growth, efficiency, or financial performance. They pick the lane to jump into. They have a framework that reinforces it. It's not like they just kind of pick some categories, but there's a framework that pulls them together and it pulls them in together in a way that's relevant for their buyer. And that differs by firm. It differs by product because, you know, some products are focused on one function. Some are enterprise wide. Some are a very specific outcome, but they have a framework that pulls it together. And that framework is really important. Next, they have a rigorous methodology. It's not, oh, I want to write a paper on this. So I'll write a paper on this related to that topic. They have a strategic approach to what they're going to develop, how it's going to be developed, who's going to develop, and how they're going to assess whether or not it's good enough to be called intellectual capital and enter into the organization's quiver, if you will, of intellectual capital. Related to that is they have or intend to sustain the themes or issues over time. So this isn't willy-nilly stuff. So those that are like COVID-19 focused, I didn't prioritize as much. They are using, to the degree that I can understand and, and see it, whether these are clients or I have relationships within those organizations, I'm able to see it cascade down from Big B brand all the way to sales and through that business or the buying cycle that we talked about. And that they're not focused just on demand gen or, or lead gen. Those are some of the, like the high level criteria I looked at in these examples and we can pull out where they do things well or where they need improvement in them. Does that sound good? Does that make sense? I think that was a thousand points of light from Pre- President Bush, wasn't it? <laughs> I think I only got to 986. <laughs> okay, there we go. No, they, they all sound really good. And I have to admit, as usual, our listeners have probably figured this out. You know, we say, hey, let's get some examples. And you got, you have a very you know structured criteria of how you're going to do that. And I just kind of think through the back of my head and say, well, who do I really think is doing a good job? And then I just kind of make a list. <laughs> it wasn't nearly as structured. It was really just folks that come to mind that I really admire for one reason or another, or firms that I really admire some element of what they're doing. But I agree with everything you had on that list in terms of the, the different dimensions that that seem to influence my thinking on it. Okay. Well, shall we jump in with the first one? Yeah, let's jump in. I will put links to all of these in the show notes. So if you want to go out and see some of these examples, you know, just go to rattleandpedal.com and they'll be in the show notes like we always do. All right. So Jason, I went off the reservation. I made sure that there weren't a lot of like big brand names in any of these because I want to give people encouragement that it can be done, whether you're big or small. Okay. So my first one, And I absolutely love this one and love this approach. And it is, and I bet you lots of our listeners from the marketing side have heard of this one. It's Scott Brinker and the Chief Martech 
Facebook.com. Absolutely love the intellectual capital coming out of chiefmartech.com. And he, he hits on so many of the strategic dimensions needed to really have breakthrough intellectual capital. Now, granted, you know, he's very small, now works for HubSpot, but in 2008, he laid out a vision for the evolution and revolution of marketing technology. It was his passion and really started out with a model of the convergence of marketing technology and strategy and really came to prominence, not just because of his strong point of view about how marketing was moving up into that strategic layer when it came to technology decisions, but how the changing communication structure with clients was was being digitized and, and completely changed. And I think he really splashed on to the landscape because of his MarTech map, which kept evolving, which really was a great tool that allowed him to not only demonstrate authority, but to be so connected into not only the existing technologies, but all of those fledgling technologies that wanted to be part of that map. And since 2008, he has not changed the categories of which he speaks about and the focus of that intellectual capital. You know, it's focused on marketing from a strategic perspective, technology, and the management of those two things. So I'll pause there. I'll pause there. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I loved his stuff early on in that kind of 2008, 2010, 2011 timeframe. I've disconnected from the stuff in the last four or five years only because I just don't want to spend as much time in the marketing technology arena as I was. So it's not anything about what he's doing as much as it is just kind of like losing interest in kind of that ongoing journey of the explosion of MarTech. I think it's interesting you picked him only because I don't know the profit model underlying MarTech anymore. I don't know exactly how it's done, but it's not really a firm, right? I mean, it's it's a it was a movement that spawned events, and, and I think he made a ton of money off that, but it was never structured to be a, a, a consulting offer, was it? No, it, I, I don't think it was beyond you know the speaking in, in the event structure. And that's one of the reasons I, I put it in there, is that intellectual capital drives to many different purchase decisions. Right. And in this case, you know, it's more event and it became a, a, almost a whole platform because all those technology companies wanted visibility on that platform, revenue from events. You know, there was an evangelism, evangelism associated with it. But in, in my mind, and it's the reason I, I led with it, it doesn't matter. The discipline of intellectual capital production and its commercialization really becomes or is the result of clear thinking, clear point of view, targeted to very specific people in a relentless pursuit of insights and value around a topic that allows you to stand out. And I just think he did that phenomenally well, you know, and he turned it into, you know, a role at HubSpot where he's the head of their ecosystems. But I think where he ends up, gosh, what is this, 13 years later, you could argue 
you know, did he end up in the right place? Did he monetize it the right way? You know, those are business decisions to talk about. But I think in terms of pure intellectual capital strategy towards commercialization, a small organization, it's a great model. It's a great model. Yeah. I mean, I I would challenge you that I think most firm owners care deeply about the monetization piece. (laughs) So I I think that that's, you can't leave it off the table. That said, I actually think it was incredibly successful for him because what people don't know, I don't know him at all. I've never met him. I know you have, but the one thing I do know is that he was the CMO of Ion Interactive when he started that mm-hmm. work, and he was also a founder in that in that venture. So the, the, ultimately, the the Martech kind of like platform that he built catalyzed Ion Interactive massively. I'm sure, and so I'm sure he made a ton of money for that business from that ride. I don't know if he sold his share when he moved to HubSpot or not, but but it, but it, I think it's a pretty interesting one. Well, that's a really good one to start on. I mean, that's a tough one to top, actually, in actuality, because I do think you kind of, you know, to your point, I mean, it's along the lines of what Gartner did with Challenger Sale, which we won't talk about, but where you were, where the idea is so big that it becomes way bigger than the individual that spawned it or the firm that spawned it. And that's certainly the case for that MarTech landscape, right? You've seen other entities pick it up and run with it for a million different purposes. So it's, you know, certainly a great example. Well, I'll throw one out that I think is a little bit more narrow and probably a little bit more to be accessible to some firms. So it's one of Bob's clients actually is Rob Share over at CEO to CEO. He's sort of a management consultant and a coach to middle market companies. And when Bob started working with him. He launched that, that his book on the, the mighty mid-sized companies. So it came out around the same time that the National Center for the Middle Market was spawning its research on the middle market of the U.S. economy. But you know, he just had incredible discipline and with Bob's help, I'm sure, in terms of topic selection and structure. So really what happened was in that early stages is he architected, he did a research study and he architected you know, an understanding of the middle market of the U.S. economy and what was going on inside that slice of the economy, the same way that we did over at the National Center for the Middle Market. And he looked at really its unusual role in driving economic growth in the country. But then he came at it in a very structured, organized way. He came at it from a strategy and leadership perspective. You know, what do middle market companies do differently than ones that are growing really well? He went after M&A, he went after operations, he went after culture and leadership. And more recently, he published something about driving sales through the kind of virtual cycle of the last 12 months. And what he did with Bob's help was they architected a series of five or six different HBR articles topically in that order that I just shared. And those articles essentially were the flashpoints for the chapters in the book. So essentially, it was like he was deconstructing the book in each parts of the book in each article. And then, of course, leading you to the book every time you got one of those articles. And so in terms of just, I think, building out a framework of being really clear on who we do business with, being really clear on the areas in which we help, and then executing a really, really smart strategy for getting that into the market in a really effective way not seen anybody do it maybe as structured as that, where it was, we're hitting these seven articles, there's these chapters in the book, and it all leads you into a purchase decision, right? And I have to admit, I haven't even really dug deep on that book or those articles. 
But just from the outside looking in and the conversations I've had with Bob over the years about it, it's been so impressed with the rigor by which that execution was done. So that's my first. Well, that's a good promotion of him. I've never heard of him. I'm going to check out this research. Yeah, it's great stuff. If you actually look at kind of like the the middle market of the U.S. economy, it's, everybody talks about the middle market now. Yes. But I can yeah. tell you in 2011, when the center was started and we were starting to work with them, nobody knew what the middle market was. The idea that there was this middle section of the economy that was driving a third of the jobs in this country and was really, quite frankly, driving all the employment growth and all the revenue growth, GDP growth during the financial recession Nobody knew that. That was like completely new ground. It was a completely ignored sector. And the center came at that with our help to some extent and developing research to understand that. I think what Rob did is he came at it, obviously, as a consultant in a little bit more practical, actionable fashion. We were coming at it as, you know, from a macro approach. He was coming at it from a micro approach. You know, how how are these companies operating and behaving differently? And what are they doing? If you look at the data, I mean, it's pretty remarkable, really. I mean, I don't want to bore our listeners, but when you run through the, the, the Great Recession, the middle market consistently grew the whole time. And you're talking 2 million jobs created in a period when the Fortune 500 destroyed a million. But again, before that window, it was really, I mean, in my mind, there's like three or four entities that shine the light on that. It was the center. It was Rob. You might argue it was RSM and Deloitte. There's like four basically voices that have kind of shaped our understanding of the middle market. And he was certainly one of them. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. On to the next one. You're up. All right. This is one that I absolutely love for several reasons. Full disclosure, we only have time for probably two more. One from you, one from me. Ah. <laughs> so you better pick wisely. I have the I have the record control here. So this next one is a SaaS company called Sphera Solutions. It was a spin out of IHS Market, which is a huge global data and yeah. information company. What I love about this this company is the simplicity of its structure, its commitment to it long-term, the quality of its thought leadership, particularly as it, it spun out of IHS market. It's, it's evolved somewhat since then, but they have a, a, and we didn't talk about this, but you know, related to that framework and a big part of executing intellectual capital is building that intellectual capital framework into your brand architecture. And they did a phenomenal job with that. So they created this very clear model focused on, well, let me take a step back. Sphera is an environmental health and and safety software. And they specialize essentially in, in three areas, environmental health and safety, product stewardship, and operational risk are the, are the three categories. And this incredible model they put together is about 
it supports their value proposition of creating this safer, more sustainable and productive world. In the interrelationships between people, material and the production or operational process in the production of the products, almost a whole life cycle. But what they really did well, really did well, is honed in on an ideal client. They only work in, or the core of their business is dirty and dangerous. (laughs) And that's the way they articulate it, dirty and dangerous, where people die if things aren't done right. And they would argue that their software does more to keep people safe and the environment clean than any other software that's out there. And that most of the environmental health and safety and sustainability companies actually manage decimal points of difference to the magnitude of the things that they impact. And they have this incredible convergence of these ideas, and they've taken this huge pool of data that they have and have really moved into predictive analytics and and insights. But they are on the cutting edge of AI, Internet of Things, wearables, and all of this this stuff. It's a complex B2B sale and they just do a phenomenal job and their marketing team does a good job of, of wrapping it up in a nice pretty box, <laughs> if you will. It's Sphera, S-P-H-E-R-A? Yes. Yeah, I'm familiar with them, but I haven't really read their stuff at length. I'm going to give one from our client roster actually, and it's going to be a little bit different in that I think we actually struggle uh, on the front side a little bit, but it's TBM Consulting. So that's an operations consulting firm that we've worked with for the better part of five years. And the reason I'm sharing them is, is oddly enough, to your point, I would say in terms of executing on intellectual capital, obviously we partner with them, we help them. But the, the front side of that equation, the process of really taking kind of a specific topic and taking developing content out of it is actually fairly difficult for us. It's never easy for us to get from topic to content. But what I think is really powerful about what the way that they've come at this is that it's an operational consulting firm for manufacturers. And everything about the business was built on this central governing point of view around speed. And so the, the essence of the firm is that you know, the faster you can operate, the faster you can grow, the more opportunities it creates for you. So basically when you when you accelerate an operational life cycle, you extract tons of savings, you make your organization more nimble, and all that stuff can go back into the top line to fuel top line revenue growth and to create opportunity you couldn't do any other way. And what I think is so powerful about them is that the simplicity of that message, it just speed wins, has been the essence of the brand for six years. And even in the heart of the pandemic, they, they never wavered. It was, that is the central message that we need to take to the marketplace. And in fact, during the pandemic, they said, now more than ever, you have to you, you have to be faster than you've ever had to be because all of a sudden your cycle times changed dramatically. All of a sudden, you have absolutely no idea what supply components are going to be available this week or next week. You have absolutely no idea what customer demand is going to be on Tuesday or Thursday. So you better be faster than you've ever been. And my point in telling that story, where where they're so good, is that they take it all the way down into sales and service delivery better than anybody I've ever seen. Meaning, like I remember I challenged them once. We were talking about their work in the private equity space. And the philosophy on speed wins had always governed our intellectual capital. But the question became, well, does it actually govern our work? 
So it's one thing to say, we'll make you faster as an organization. It's another thing for us to actually work faster as a firm than somebody else. And at the end of the day, they're like, absolutely, like absolutely extends that far. So it's like, yeah, we'll do due diligence in 24 hours, right? <laughs> you know, we will. So it's, it's like they, they literally not only philosophically talk about accelerating the operational environments of the clients in which they work, they actually talk about how they accelerate their consulting work to go faster than they could, could have gone today than they could have gone yesterday or the day before, which I think is a really cool thing because it kind of comes down to your point of, I think it was number six, you know, how do you cascade this down? So, you know, very clear ideal client, very clear point of view. And they are really, really good at sort of translating that point of view down into sales and service delivery, probably mm-hmm. better than most, most firms I've seen. Even though, oddly enough, where we struggle the most in, in that model is, is in the demand gen category, where intellectual capital tends to be you know, usually seen as, as the heart and soul. Of it, so, What a great example. What a great little firm that actually reinvented itself and moved into you know, that category, but stayed true to its, its roots in, in so many ways. Yeah, I like that example. And that's, that's definitely a firm people should check out. All right, now we are out of time. <laughs> so, one more. Okay, one more. Fast. You got you have a more. minute and a half. Okay, I think this one is important for the traditionalists on the phone <laughs> podcast <laughs> that you know want to see maybe something somebody they know something about is doing, and I'm going to throw out BDO, one of the top ten accounting firms that is doing some some really cool things around COVID-19 that illustrates the power of a framework to bring the firm together and to communicate the breadth of services in a way that is client-centric. And I'll, I'll link to this, but they had this really cool framework they called the Resilience Agenda. Resilience is not a, you know, kind of cutting edge concept. Um, you're hearing more and more people talk about that now and in, in COVID, but the name of it isn't as important to the framework it's, itself in, in my mind. But anyway, what's really cool about it is, and the thing I like about it, is that it picks some very business-centric issues where there's problems that need to be addressed. So they use COVID as the context and they divided it into five categories, supporting your workforce, managing your business, mitigating risk, understanding the economic impacts, and then the evolving regulation and compliance coming out of of this, which to me are good topics. They're pretty generic business topics and they're aligned well with their their lines of business. But what I really like about this framework is it's time-based, is they took those topics and said, here's what you need to be thinking about in the short term. Here's what you need to be thinking about in the midterm. And here's what you need to be thinking long-term. And they categorize those into you know very simple, memorable areas of persevere, maintain, and recover. And then they set it up, you know, to thrive once you get through that. And then there were subcategories in each one of those areas. So that I think there were 15 topics. And I just, I just love it. I, I, I think it's phenomenal. Here would be my criticism of it. And what I would caution you against, if you see it and you're like, yeah, we could do something like that. I think this is overly 
complex. 15 of those topics is going to be really hard to get any traction on them, I think. And when you start, or let me take a step back, that model, marketing created an interactive model on their website, which is a cool idea, a cool idea. My sense is if <laughs> they got caught up in the excitement of it and over-engineered it, it's kind of takes you in places you, you didn't know you were going. But the main thing, and I don't know this, that's why I gave the caveat at the, the start, is there's not a clear linkage to revenue and sales. There are some linkages and some nice linkages to solutions and tools that can be used. But my concern and what I would want to look at in a model like this is what's the interactivity? What's the linkage to opportunities? What's resonating? What's not resonating? But I'd encourage you to go out and just click through this thing and look at how they're trying to cascade down intellectual capital. But the reason I share it with you is the model itself, the framework. I think it's a great illustration of a framework. Cool. I want to check it out. I haven't seen it, so I'm excited to look at it now. I haven't been very familiar with that firm. So, all right, that's a wrap. So I think this actually is going to bring us to conclusion on our intellectual capital series. So we're going to pivot next week for our listeners. We'll come back to intellectual capital, of course, because it's such a huge part of marketing any firm. But we're going to take a pause on intellectual capital and we're going to go another direction. So... All right, Jeff. Thanks. This has been fun, buddy. It has been fun. I really enjoyed it. Me too. All right. See you next week. See ya. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.